I don't know if we've ever had a teaser trailer for a sermon series. That was awesome. Kurt put that, Kurt put that together, and that was fantastic. Oh, what an honor it is to be up here and get a chance to share with you guys. Uh, a word that the Lord has impressed firmly on my heart as I've been uh, reading and getting ready to prepare and share with you guys this morning. Um, I feel as though in so many ways I've just been caught up in glory this week. So I give Pastor Steve full permission to just dive tackle me if I end up going on and on and on, okay? Full permission. Because it'll be hard to, hard to be stopped to stop once you get going. So this morning we're introducing uh, a new series titled One Thing. And more specifically this morning we're going to be talking about priority. The concept for this series really came out of uh, a number of months ago in April when most of our staff attended a district retreat titled Refresh. And at Refresh, uh, there was a man there by the name of Werner Drost, who's a pastor, um, and he was speaking to us a lot about Sabbath and a lot about rest in our lives, about cultivating a daily rhythm of refocusing and living a life that is less distracted from what is really important. Out of that, many of us were just so inspired and touched by, by his words and his challenges to us that we really felt, you know what, this, is, this isn't just a timely word for us, but this is a timely word for our congregation as well. I've been really blessed this week preparing, getting to marinate in what I'm about to share with you. The passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning really almost fits as the core for the whole of the series. It's this passage in Luke with Mary and Martha where we encounter Jesus' challenge that our concern is not to be about many things, but about one thing. But, but before I jump into that, I'd like, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this idea of balance. I thought that video did such a great job of showing like this, sort of our, our obsession kind of with balance and, and how we pursue that as a way of life. And if you look out, our, our culture is almost consumed with that notion. Everything from exercise, diet, work life, home life, social life, the message is almost resounding. You've heard it a thousand times. People saying, it's all about balance. It's what it's about. Life's about balance. And there's something attractive about that as well. Even to a Christian, living a balanced life, this idea of, of avoiding extremes, the more conservative road, having the best of both worlds. But you know what? In truth, there are a lot of pitfalls to living life in the pursuit of balance. I'd like to mention a few of them to you before we jump into our text. First of all, as our video clearly displays that, you know, it's, it's impossible to maintain a sense of balance long term, isn't it? It lacks stability right from the start. It's on shaky ground. Balance takes effort to maintain, and even when it's attained, it's fragile and only lasts for a moment. Once it's attained, it's subject to being easily toppled by any other outside force, or any shifting of priorities. In another way, balance is, is really quite confusing, isn't it? 
You know, on the one hand, balance is is an attempt to avoid extremes and to dwell in the middle ground. But in order for this to happen, sometimes compromise has to happen where no compromise should be permitted. On the other hand, balance attempts to manage extremes, where each is permitted so long as each receives equal attention in some sort of bipolar madness. In truth, pursuing balance as a way of life sells you on a bit of a lie. And the lie is this, that you can have it all in life. That you can add whatever you want, whatever is of interest of you, whatever you deem worthy, you can add that to your life so long as it balances out. You don't have to choose. You can have it all. Provided it balances. But it's a lie. I'd like to, like to introduce an idea that, you know what, balance really isn't even really all that desirable. And I'd like to share a quote with you from John Ortberg in his book, The Life You Always Wanted. This is what John says, and it's challenging, I'll warn you. The paradigm of balance simply doesn't capture the sense of compelling urgency worthy of human devotion. It is largely a middle-class pursuit. Ouch. It lacks a notion that my life is being given to something larger than myself. It lacks a call to sacrifice and self-denial, the wild, risky, costly, adventurous abandon of following Jesus. He goes on to challenge, ask hungry children in Somalia if they want to help you achieve balance. And you'll discover that they're hoping for so much more from you. And John says, I believe that deep down you're hoping for something more as well. Lastly, this idea of pursuing balance as a way of life really isn't even biblical. You know, there's the odd verse in the Bible that you could take out and it sort of alludes to an idea of balance. But really, if you explore the people that were to to emulate and model after, people like the Apostle Paul, you know, didn't exactly live a balanced life. I mean, he built tents to fund his preaching campaigns so that he could take the word of God to more churches. Not much in there about balance. So where does that leave us? What does the Bible actually teach us to ascribe to if not the notion of living a balanced life? Mark Buchanan, uh, a writer and a professor at Ambrose University says, forget balance. Go for magnificent obsession. I kind of like that. And I think it's a little bit closer to what the Bible actually calls us toward, to live our lives. And to live life with a magnificent obsession is to choose to live a life of priority. But don't take my word for it. Let's, let's jump into the biblical text. We're hanging out this morning in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Five verses in the Bible that punch an incredible, that pack an incredible punch. Now, I kind of want to structure this message for you. Um, In honor of all the rain that we've had over the past couple of weeks, this this will seem pertinent. I kind of found myself staring out my window, watching how raindrops would come and splash in puddles and make that really neat ripple effect. And I I feel like that applies well to scripture. So we're going to be looking this morning at kind of three sort of components to to this passage. 
The first one is, is this idea of the drop, the raindrop, which is going to represent our actual passage, the verses I've just called, named out to you. Secondly, we're going to be looking at where this drop, that single drop, meets the puddle. So that's kind of in its context in Luke's, where the rubber meets the road, where that, where that drop actually exists in time. And then third, there's this idea that once a raindrop hits the puddle, it creates this ripple effect where these ripples go out in kind of cascading across. And in a lot of ways, this story that we're looking at in Luke has ripples that cascade across time and space. I can't help but feeling a little like uh, Doc Brown from Back to the Future, you know, a time and space continuum. But it touches our world. So before we jump in and read our passage, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are God and that you invite us into relationship and that you desire to speak to us. And Lord, I know that you have something you want to share with us this morning. I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive your words this morning. May it accomplish the task for which you have set it to. Amen. So in Luke 10, 38 to 42, let's read. The home of Mary and Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to them, to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So as we walk through this story, I'd like to do so in kind of three perspectives. I don't want to rush, because I think sometimes we've all heard this story before, right? And I think sometimes we all categorize in our mind already who we relate more with, you know? There's the, there's the Marthas, who we all love, because they're the girls that roll up their sleeves, put their hair back, put the apron on, and get stuff done, right? And then on the other hand, there's Mary, who, you know, is almost seems sometimes like a bit aloof, and is that always found sitting around, you know, listening to the words of Jesus, but I'd like to challenge us, don't, let's not draw those, that um, dichotomy right off the start. Let's try and look at this scripture with sort of fresh eyes and an openness. So we're going to explore it sort of from three perspectives. Obviously, that of Mary and Martha, and then one from, from Jesus, or sort of from, from Luke's perspective. So let's, let's begin from Martha's perspective. As you hold this scripture open in your, in your lap, Feel free to kind of wander through it and gaze through it as, as I sort of talk. But Martha's perspective. So let's, let's, in truth, let's all of us, let's put our hair up. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's put our aprons on and, and let's get to work. Isn't it neat that this scripture opens up with the reality that Martha invited Jesus to her home? She took the initiative. She opened up her home and invited him in. Jesus and his disciples 
I've always seemed to miss that in this story. She wanted to be a host. She was eager. So she put herself out there. And it's clear that her sister, Mary, was there. And that we're told that she's spending time with Jesus. And the scripture goes on to say that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that she had to make. And those of you who relate well with Martha's out there, you can identify that maybe she was feeling a little bit frustrated. You know, that sense of urgency that arises when guests pop in and there's a lot of stuff to do. There's a lot of expectation in terms of being a good host. Who doesn't want to be a great host and put your best foot forward? Especially when you're entertaining the likes of Jesus and his disciples. It's not hard to imagine how Martha's emotions were compounded by the fact that her dear blessed sister Mary was not helping her at all. You can imagine, she'd be fuming. She's frustrated by her lack of productivity and getting things done. There's so much to do. And yet, Mary, who's supposed to be helping her, supposed to be supporting her sister, is nowhere to be found. Obviously, Martha's would kind of boil over at this, and she goes directly to Jesus. And she interrupts. She breaks in, and she tells the Lord to tell Mary to help her. Interestingly, as I kind of looked into this passage this week, I was neat, it was neat to find out that in the Greek, there's actually a way that, that the way that the Greek language works, that you can convey sort of someone's intentions in the questions that they're asking. And it says about this specifically that Martha's question to the Lord is actually in such a way that she fully expected the Lord to sort of take her side take up her cause and be in full agreement with her and to do what she was asking. That's how confident she was. She was sure that obviously the Lord would see the air of Mary's way and instruct her to help me. You know, English, we don't really get that in our writing. You know, in my mind, the closest thing I come to is like when I'm, when I'm headed home after a busy day at work, you know, and Jen's had the girls all day and it's been one of those days, you know, where they're all having crises at the same time, and I blow in the front door, you know, hang up my jacket, change my shirt, and as I'm almost headed out the front door already, I'm like, hey, Jan, just wanted to let you know I'm going to head out and see a movie. And that look I get from her. Oh, are you? She says. That in her tone and in that look, it makes me reevaluate instantly and go, you know what, maybe I'm not. I think I'm needed here. It's kind of like that in the Greek. But the Lord doesn't respond to Martha that way, does he? Rather, he speaks gently. He draws her attention to her internal state. He notes, he notices that she's worried and she's upset about many things. And he gently corrects her, saying, you know, a a few things are necessary, really only one. And this comparison that, that Martha has drawn between her and Mary, Jesus goes, okay, if you want to go down that route, Mary has actually chosen the better. And that won't be taken from her. You know, we're not told how Martha responded to this. You know, did she stomp off in disgust? We don't get that. But as you sit here this morning, 
with your sleeves rolled up, your hair pulled back, and your apron on? What happens inside of you when you hear Jesus' words and confrontation that he gave to Martha? That you are worried and upset about many things, and only one thing is needed. I'd like to challenge you, when was the last time in the busyness of your life, as you were running around, when was the last time that you felt the Spirit of God interrupt and confront you with that? When was the last time you found yourself there? Where when you're rushing and you're worrying that your world is hijacked by Jesus with a simple comment. I'd like to encourage you that if you're there, that this scripture this morning that we're, we're looking at is for you. Now, okay, enough about, about Martha. Let's, let's take off the apron. Let's let down our hair. Let's kick off our shoes and let's settle into the perspective of Mary because that sounds like a lot more fun. Let's get comfortable. Let's find a pillow. Let's pull up to the feet of Jesus and walk through the story from Mary's perspective. I'm sure Mary could hardly believe it that her sister had just opened up her home to Jesus and the disciples. I mean, Jesus, the miracle worker, he fed 5,000 people with limited resources. He healed countless others from sickness, diseases, and physical infirmities. The man with whom the religious leaders were growing more and more displeased with, the more and more people listened to him and responded to his message. He was coming to Martha's house, and Mary got to be there. How exciting! And Jesus enters the house. There's only one place that Mary wants to be, right there beside Jesus. But did you catch that Mary actually has to choose that? The cultural expectation in those days was not that women would be found at the feet of teachers where disciples were found, but rather that they would be more like Martha, that they would be in the kitchen, that they would concern themselves with serving. But on this day, in that moment, that's not what was stirring in Mary's heart. There's something more going on here. Mary wants to know what that more is. Some translations give the impression that Mary not only just simply listened to Jesus, like nonchalant and aloof, but rather that she hung on every single word that came from his mouth. She was captivated. Now, we're not told really specifically whether Mary heard this whole rebuke or this correction of Jesus correcting Martha, but we get the impression that if, if Martha truly interrupted, it would be kind of a public event, and Mary would also be on the sidelines hearing this conversation between Martha and Jesus. I think we can safely assume that, that it's a public conversation. And so, unassuming Mary, who is focused intently on Jesus and his words, would hear Jesus' affirmation of the choice that she has made. But not just her, but also the disciples. Interesting. Jesus and his disciples are there. Jesus is talking. Mary is listening. Martha interrupts. Jesus affirms Mary. Not his disciples, but, but Mary, the comparison that Martha had drawn. Even against cultural expectations that the place for women at that time is not as a student, but as a servant, 
Mary's choice of the one thing is affirmed and set forth as an example to emulate. What an honor to her. And Jesus says that that moment of encounter between Mary and Jesus, who is the ultimate something more, the ultimate one thing, that that would not be taken from her. We're not told how Mary responded to this either. But how would you respond? That as you put yourself there, you're there on that pillow, listening to that conversation, and you hear Jesus affirm your choice to listen to him. To hear him say, Mary has chosen the better. Wow. Can I challenge you? Can I challenge us as a church? Friends, when was the last time that we found ourselves in that place? That we found ourselves cozied up on a pillow, listening to Jesus, hanging on every word that he has to say to us. Now, of course, as we want to move on, we want to take a look at also from Jesus' perspective. And so we kind of don on our Son of God robes. We take up the mantle of responsibility for ushering in the kingdom of God and raising up disciples. That was Christ's role. But when we attempt to see the story from Jesus' perspective, we can't help but be drawn in to looking at the story from the specific perspective of the author. Because how Jesus is portrayed and who he is portrayed to be is the primary objective of, of Luke. In this case, so this is where that drop, that raindrop meets the puddle. This is that story, that raindrop in its context that we're looking at. So what do we know about Luke? Well, we know in the first part of Luke that Luke gives himself to careful investigation right from the beginning so that readers, or namely Theophilus, who his gospel is addressed to, would have certainty of the things that they are being taught about Christ. You know what's neat is that this story is actually unique to Luke's gospel. He's the only one who tells it from this, this, this perspective. And doesn't that just sound like Luke? I imagine this guy who's, who's wanting to investigate every angle, every possibility in his composing of his gospel. And so you can, almost, you can almost see it that he's the guy who goes and he actually sits down and has a meal with Martha and Mary. And he's kind of getting this story, like how they, how they experience Christ, their interactions with him. And you can almost kind of guess that maybe it was something that Martha and Mary shared between them where it rolled off like a bit of a giggle or a remember that time. And Luke jumps on it and he's like, what? Tell me more about that. And so they would divulge the rest of the story. And Luke would be interested in that. You know, sibling rivalry at its finest. And Luke wants to write about it. He wants to hear more. We know for sure that Luke is passionate about what he's writing about. That his gospel is not just some haphazard, put-together collection of stories about Jesus, but that he's focused He's intentional. He's prioritized his content. And that should tell us something. So as we, as we kind of take a look at this, um, a broader perspective from this passage of Scripture, we look at it where it lies in Luke. 
And I'd like to run through this with you for a little bit because it's really quite fascinating. As alluded to earlier, in Luke we've already encountered Jesus' ministry with many miracles and signs that have already been performed. That from healings to calming of the storm to multiplying food. You know, when you list them in that order, it's like, wow, who is this Jesus guy? There's a lot going on here. We've also encountered already in Luke, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is like the the biggest thing that Luke is wanting to get across, is who Jesus is. And we've encountered that. Not only that, but we've also witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus that confirms that very fact. Jesus has already even predicted his death a number of times. So that comes into focus. Interestingly, just before we get to chapter 10, Jesus has some harsh words for some people who would be wannabe disciples, who would come to him and want to be disciples. But they leave disappointed because of Jesus' challenges. They realize they don't have what it takes to be a disciple. It's right at the, before we get to chapter 10. Then in chapter 10, Jesus sets out his disciples on a short-term mission trip to preach and heal. And you know what? It's a huge success. His disciples come back pumped up about what God is doing and about the kingdom of God. Then something interesting happens. As was already talked about in our Samaritan video, we encounter Luke telling the story of the good Samaritan, the parable, which is a lesson in essentially that everyone is our neighbor and that this is how we're to treat them. Then we have our story and then it is followed by instructions on how to pray, how to dialogue with God. For Luke's readers, the way he has structured his account here speaks loudly in regards to the expectations of discipleship and what it looks like. We realize that discipleship is about these three things. Sorry, I'm having some mic troubles. That it's about how we relate to our neighbor, that it's about how, one, how we view one another and our time with the Lord, which is our specific story. And then three, how we engage in dialogue with God. Luke uses the story of Mary and Martha not simply to recount a sibling rivalry, but to make a strong statement highlighting Jesus' words regarding discipleship about what it means in the way that we view one another and our time with the Lord. So I would propose to you that the the key to understanding this small piece of text is through the lens of discipleship. It's no doubt that what Luke is wanting to convey to his audience is this idea that discipleship sometimes requires tasks to be suspended while fellowship is maintained. There are a number of lessons that we can learn from this passage. Lessons in discipleship that I'd like to go over briefly. But here's an idea of how not to read this passage. Whenever I encountered this passage, I almost instantly 
see it just in its context where it's this, you know, Jesus affirming Mary for listening to him and him correcting Martha for, for serving, it seems like to me. But if we look closer, we realize that, you know what, that's not actually the distinction that Jesus is making. He's not actually telling Ma- Martha that her serving isn't, isn't a priority, right? If we go back to his words, his words to her, Martha, you are distracted. You are worried and upset about many things. And his correction is gentle, simply saying that Mary has chosen what is better. Because if we, if we treat this passage of Scripture like serving is not as important as listening to Jesus, we create this unhealthy, this unhealthy dichotomy where the only thing of value in your Christian life is to be just listening to Jesus. Which, in some ways, that makes sense. But to the, to the to reluctance to serving, the, to the downplaying of the serving role. But we know that Jesus was all about serving, right? This is the master, this is the Lord who, who took on a towel and served his disciples and washed their feet. He wasn't, a, he wasn't afraid of serving. He prioritized serving. In fact, he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to be someone who serves. So what's the lesson here? For Martha. What's the discipleship lesson here for Martha? Well, we need to know that, that serving is commendable. That serving is in fact valued. But the challenge is that place from which you serve. Are you distracted? Are you worried and upset comparing yourselves to others? The truth is, is that Jesus wants more than just your service. He wants your heart. He wants to be your priority. He wants to be that reason why you serve. For Martha, it comes down to this idea of, are we able to prioritize the moment in front of you and choose the better, the more lasting approach? You know, did you know that we are in truth only able to focus on one thing at a time? A doctor in in psychology uh, put it this way in an article to kind of make her point. You know, you begin with two lines on a piece of paper, and on it, you simply do the task of writing out, I am a great multitasker. And on the next one, you write numbers 1 through 20. Pretty simple, right? For most people, that would take anywhere from 20 seconds to to 40 seconds. But now if you introduce this idea of multitasking, that we're, we're all a buzz about in our culture, thinking we can do it so successfully, do the exact same task, but now only do one letter from the top line and one number from the bottom line and go back and forth like that. And you'll quickly realize that as you try to multitask and write two lines kind of simultaneously, it's almost hopeless. I've tr- I tried it, and your brain almost freezes. And it took me all- over a minute and a half to complete that simple task. 
And the truth that this lady was getting at in her, in her article is that we can't actually give our focus to multiple things, but only really well to one thing at a time. That there's a process our brain has to go, go, uh, go to in terms of stopping, you know, starting, stopping, and starting again. That kind of freezes us up. You know, computers are able to multitask in the true sense of the word. But people, I think by God's design, we can only give 100% of our focus to one thing at a time. Um, imagine this was really an opportunity for Martha in some ways too, right? That her service could be done as though worship to God. Totally in the moment and totally focused on, principle, on, on kingdom principles. For us disciples, for us as disciples, this means prioritizing each moment as we encountering it, encounter it, seeing it from God's perspective. There is no benefit to worry. There's no benefit to comparing yourself to other people. There's no benefit to living a life where you're upset all the time about stuff that's beyond your control. Rather, the challenge for us and for Martha, is to prioritize what is in front of us and give, us, give ourselves to that as though worship. Colossians 3.17 makes a statement that, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does this look like in our lives? I learned this, I learned this point in real time this week. I'm actually at my desk preparing for this sermon and a phone call comes in, it's from Jenna. She's hanging out with our Syrian friends and she says, Chris, I'm just over here now and um, normally the person who cuts their grass didn't come by or, or something about a lawnmower broke, she couldn't quite make it out. But she said both her, our Syrian friends, and their neighbor's grass was starting to look more like an Amazon. And Jenna says to me, she says, is there any way that we can kind of help them out with this? And my comment to her was, yeah, I'm sure there is, Jenna, but I can't, I can't really take time to do it right now. I'm kind of focused on, I got to prepare for Sunday and like, you know, we can talk about this more when we get home and, and, and I'll try and make it done, but I just can't do it right now. And I hung up, the, hung up the phone. Almost instantaneously, I just feel like the Lord's conviction on me in terms of about a missed opportunity, not recognizing the moment for what it was right in front of me. So of course I frantically tried to call my wife back instantly and send her text message and like not surprised, it rings, it goes to voicemail, I send a thousand texts and she, you know, there's no instantaneous response and I could, I could not get back to focusing on Sunday prep. No way. I was just consumed with this need that, have I just missed my opportunity to be about kingdom stuff here? Like what if this is the act that, that, that melts their heart or that, that opens them up to the gospel? And I'm kind of freaking out here. And, and thankfully, after about 15, 20 minutes or whatever, I'm actually able to get in, in touch with Jenna. And I said, I'm going to come this afternoon and we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to make it happen. God wants us to prioritize each moment as we live it. So what about for Mary? What are the discipleship lessons from Mary's perspective? Well, I think for the Marys in the audience this morning, you need to know that there's an affirmation of your listening, that God values that, 
that as you take time to hear him. And if you think about what is this idea of listening that's portrayed in this passage, isn't it really about prioritizing what God prioritizes? That we need to listen. I'm so thankful for, uh, for Steve and his leadership here at Hillcrest, this church renewal process that he's been le- leading us on, this, you know, going through hearing God seminars and prayer summits. What an amazing opportunity to hear from God and to keep that at the forefront, to prioritize that as disciples, an important role for us is our time with the Lord, to hear from him. The, pastor heart, the pastor's heart email that came out had a story about Ruby Dilsner in there and shared a little bit about a current encounter that she had in hearing from God. The Marys out there need to know that listening and taking time to do that is worthy of God's affirmation. A disciple takes the time to prioritize listening to God. But make no mistake that we have to choose that. She had to be intentional with it, as do we. It's neat that Jesus makes that statement that these things will never be taken away from Mary. As I reflected a little bit on that this week, I was thinking, you know, that's so true that no matter what's going on in our lives, it could be totally chaotic, and there's seasons in our lives that call for our absolute attention, and we are just plain busy. And yet we always have that opportunity to listen, to be in that posture. And that those encounters with God are something that he promises will never be taken away from us. That we always have that opportunity. In, in closing, we do not really only find ourselves as either a Martha or a Mary, but in truth we do experience both. You have no idea how tempted I am right now to say that it's all about balance. <laughs> but it's not about balance, right? It's about magnificent obsession. It's about choosing to live a life of priority. Where whether we're serving or we're listening, we're prioritizing what God is doing. Sure, if you want comfort and you want safety and you want the betterment of your health, you can choose to pursue a life of balance. But if you want to live a life as a disciple of Christ, well, now you're going to have to live with the reality that every day, you daily have to make decisions to live a life of priority. I'd like to invite Pastor Steve up we're actually going to start partaking uh, of communion. And I can't help but think, what an awesome opportunity to respond to today's message. That as we enter in a, t- a brief time of kind of reflection at the, of the Lord's table, you know, maybe there's some things in your life, some priorities that have kind of been a little bit misplaced. 